Testing, testing, one, two, three. Testing, testing, one, two, three. We are on the air. This is Thesis. Three, two, one. We are on the air. This is Thesis. Everything is everything. I am your host, Jay Marie. How's it going out there, folks? Thank you for showing up today and hanging out with us. Hope you are doing well. All right. Um, so uh, I wanted to I wanted to talk to you guys today about okay. So you know the election and all that stuff just happened, but you know throughout the year we saw a lot of um, uh, you know like political activity, right? Uh, we saw demonstrations. We've seen both peaceful demonstrations uh, uh, and violent demonstrations. You know we've seen riots, and then you know we got the Antifa type people in the in the uh, North uh, Pacific Northwest, right? They're always coming around, and uh, so there's a lot of uh, well, not a lot, but but you know there's been uh, more than normal, I would say, like political violence lately, right? In the past several years, um, and that's what I wanted to talk about: political violence. As they, you know, in a free society, you know, um, the way we treat each other says a lot about about our society and where our society is going. Stay, if we can get along with each other, you know, if we can talk things out, then society runs pretty smoothly. Right? But if there's if there's beefs between factions or if there's beefs between races and political parties, then it's, it makes it much harder for for things to be achieved, you know, even just for agreements. You know, we've talked before about how there's probably lots of things that we can agree on, let's say, from the different uh, sides of the political spectrum. There's a lot of things, I'm sure, that we can find that we agree on, but we will never know if we can't communicate with each other, you know? And then in the bigger scope of things, if, if this div division is really... Um, you know, it's the really prevalent, let's say, or really strong division, then it can escalate into violence, as we see when Antifa shows up, as we've seen in some of the BLM riot, uh, 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 yeah, riots and stuff. Um, also, uh, you know, when we talk about like like political violence, terrorism actually um, falls under under you know, that definition of, of political violence, let's say. Because, you know, when when the terrorists do their thing or however they're doing it, they're doing it in uh, to try to affect some some sort of change in, in society or in their society or whatever, right? So, you know, it's usually something as the, as the you know, where, where, because they're, it's something, it's it's political, you know, because you blow up the police station or whatever. It's political, or, or whatever you you're trying to make a political statement, right? It's the um. So the violence, as far as political violence, you know, it, it I'm sure it goes way back, right, to the Roman legions and stuff. You know, if there's an area of of people. Este, who, who don't want to conform or whatever, este, 
then of course they come and they beat people up or whatever, right? To to kind of hey, it's time to conform, right? And then things to get rough. So people, okay, they got their heads cracked, their village got burned, so they conform. That's political violence, right? And then when we see riots and stuff too, we can we can also uh, al align that with political violence because most of these things uh, are for to try to affect some sort of uh, change, some sort of societal change, governmental change, or whatever, you know? As the Martin Luther King and them, you know, they figured, you know, the best way to get the message across is nonviolence, right? So, so, so their political activity was nonviolent, though the response was violent to their nonviolent movement. You know, so in return, there was political violence from the authority side of of the spectrum. You know, when we're talking, let's say, citizens, and then we're talking the state, right? Um, so, you know, like, okay, so the definition, let's look at the definition of politics. Este, because the way we understand it today, it's all about governance, right? Washington, governance, those type of things. Uh, but, you know, um, when when you when you go back to the way let's say as the aristotle talked about politics you know he kind of meant it more like like the treat the way we behave with each other right the treatment amongst each other uh the people the family families with the, with other families neighbors with neighbor you know politics in its purest sense you know because we we de amongst each other we develop these um, um, agreements and 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 ways of treating each other and this and that you know so outside of the state the official state politics exist among people before any ruling party before any governance you know politics in its purest form exists among the people outside of the state, right? When I say state, I mean governance, right? So let's look at the definition and let's see what, um, let's see what it says, okay? Uh, the activities associated with the governance of a country or other area, especially the debate or conflict among individuals or parties having or hoping to achieve party, okay? Other definitions, the activities of governments concerning the political relations, okay, that's on the same level. The next definition, the academic study of government and the state, okay, political lecture, okay. As the activities within an organization that are aimed at improving someone's status or positions and are typically considered to be devious or divisive. Or like internal politics, let's say at a company or something like that. A uh, particular set of uh, political beliefs, assumption of principle. Okay, as the now, let's go to uh, the Greek. Let's see what it means in back in the day, right? So, how why do we use this word politic, right? Politics or politic the way we do today. So let's go back to the uh, right the phonetics back and uh, see where it comes from or whatever the fuck. Uh, so its origin is Greek. Uh, it's uh, the, so the first word we got there is polis, right? Polis, polis, which means city, polis. Oh, okay, like metropolis, 
right? Uh, 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 what was, what's the name? What something with polis on the end of it? Um, anyhow, okay. So polis means city, and then it says again, polites, citizen, right? So polis is city, polites is citizen. Uh, politicos. I guess it's a blend of the two. And then in old French, we got politique. <clears throat> okay. So, city and citizens. Citizens. So, see, it, it, it means something more about the people itself. But, of course, the way we use it, it's more about governance of the people. Um, like administration of the people. Let's say. Este, so, so violence, right? So when we talk about, when we think of violence, este, we, we think of, I mean, sorry, when we think of political violence, este, you know, it's, it's, it's something that's very dangerous. Because in a, in a civil society, you know, you don't fight it out on the streets. I mean, you know, that can lead into, that always leads to civil war and stuff like that. I mean, you can look into history, look at our own history and other nations um, to where that's the outcome of political violence because it just continues to escalate, right? So look, let's just look at the, the definition of terrorism. It says, the unlawful use of violence and intimidation, especially against civilians in the pursuit of political aims so terrorism is also um, uh, political violence you know because it's 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 uh, it has political aims right all right so what the reason why I wanted to talk about this sp uh, specific topic is because in the news and uh, you know lately with the antifas and all that stuff you hear a lot about um, fascism right that the president is fascist or this government is fascist so these anti-fascist people um you know they make they make their group to fight fascism to fight kkk um to fight nazis right because they punch nazis right they 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 fight fascists um and they use violence to do so 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 in the big scope of things when 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 antifa attacks people it's political violence uh when when BLM attacks people, it's political violence. If there's a, a white supremacy group out there roaming the streets, attacking Jews or attacking blacks, that would be considered political violence. Okay, and there's and there's a lot of it happening in more modern in recent times. You know, so so fascism, right? What the hell is fascism? You know, you look up the definition. And, um, and, <laughs> you know, the thing about, the thing about, anyhow, you know what, now I'm going to, so, you know, we look up the definition, <clears throat> este, it's a, it's a, it's, so, look, it's a, it's a political tactic, right? It became a political party in Italy, este, but because, but, but, but the way it started was just a, a movement. It was just a movement on the streets, you know? After World War One in Italy, there was, uh, you know, not just in Italy, but in Europe, there was a rise of communism throughout the area, you know. 
So a lot of these soldiers that came back after World War One, you know, all um, disheartened and disheveled, and then they see what's going on in their community with the rise of, of communism when they just kind of fought a lot of that stuff in the First World War, sort of, you know. But there was a rise of it going on. And, um, you know, these men, they, they kind of just made a gang, a group, basically. Not a gang, but, you know, a group. And and their mission was to just beat up communists, you know. Why? Because they didn't like communists. They felt as that communists was a threat. So they started a small little group, and they'd go and find communists, you know, in the neighborhood, people who, who sympathize with them, and they'd go beat them up, you know, uh, and and stuff like that. You know, and, and it wasn't a, an official political party or nothing. It was just like, basically like a gang, if you would, uh, you know, if you would just imagine a gang of dudes, and, and they wore black, black shirts, you know, este, and and este, they they would beat people up, you know, who, 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 so they didn't like the communists. So the fascists, right, let's, let's call them the fascists, um, didn't like communists. That's who they were beating up. They were beating up the socialists and the communists, you know, mainly the communists. I mean, though, uh, that, it's, okay, just fascism, they hated communists, so they were beating them up, you know, violently in the streets, in their stores, whatever. Este, so first of all, the uh, the word fascism. Let's um, let's look at the definition. Este, este, a political philosophy or movement or regime, este, that exalts nation and often race above individual, and that stands for centralized autocratic government headed by a dictatorial leader, severe economic and social regimentation and forcible suppression of opposition forcible suppression of opposition is the main attribute i would say of fascism because the rest of the stuff goes to totalitarian you know you can totalitarianism can exist in all kinds of forms but fascism is separated by the rest by the forcible oppression suppression of opposition you know the nazi party the brown shirts were similar they used fascist tactics you know they would take out um a political opponents and stuff like that you know este um um so they started a group to beat up people and and i believe let's look at the um the 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 original word right in in um in italy was fascio or fasi, which literally means bundle or group, you know. Um, so the idea was in a group we're stronger. So, you know, if there's 30 of us, we're stronger in a bundle, in a group. So fasi means bundle. Fasi, fascio, right, means bundle. So fascism was just uh, the, the practice of, of being in groups, right, and beating people up. But anyhow... So, um, but then it actually became a political party, which changed the whole thing. But we want to just focus on what they were doing. So, we're gonna go to we're gonna go to um, some audio here. You know how we like to do it. Este, and we're gonna go to so Benito Mussolini was the father of fascism, let's say. Uh, but as a political party, right? 
But we want, what we're going to do is we're going to look at the beginning of fascism, the tactics and what they did, uh, so we can at least get a little better understanding of at least the angle of the fascist, right? Because actually what we're going to do is we're going to look at several different things today. We're going to look at uh, Mussolini and the fascist, right? We're going to look at, um, I believe I have some... Uh, some um, SS Nazis uh, lined up also. We're going to look at political violence in Mexico. Este, uh, what else do I got? Well, we're, we're, we're just going for it, okay? So, But we're going to look at several different things. But we're going to start with the, with the father of fascism, which is Benito Mussolini, uh, before pre-World War II in Italy. So we're going to go to our friends at um, History, War History Documentaries. Uh, and this is from the History Channel. Uh, and this is, we're going to go for about, this is a little long, not super long, but I, 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 I got it clipped to where uh, it, it, it leads us, it, it gives us, an, it leaves us in a good spot. So it's, it's a little over 10 minutes, 11, 12 minutes, but it's full of information that we, uh, that's important. So let's go ahead and Benito Mussolini and the Rise of Fascism in Italy. The war had been a disaster for Italy. Even eventual victory in 1918 brought only muted celebrations. Italy did not gain its expected spoils of war and the mood of the nation was one of anger and despair. And everywhere was a looming fear of revolution. Only a few years earlier the Russian government had been overthrown by revolutionary socialists and the zeal of rebellion was now running through Italy. Strikes and demonstrations were threatening to paralyze the country. In Turin, Ettore Ovazza looked out on the city he loved and was enraged by what he saw. He saw not the disciplined society he desired, but the potential horror of a communist revolution. In the city streets below, there was near insurrection, with riots and looting. The middle classes feared their property would be seized. Ettore Ovazza feared revolutionaries would also rip apart the nation he loved. He wrote in his diary. In the nation, political hatred spread like wildfire. The young returning home, proud of having fought with honor, many with their brave bodies wounded, were downcast and alone. This cry of anguish was heard by a man who was worthy of it, by Benito Mussolini. What he believed Italy needed now was a new political movement, one that was not afraid to use violence to achieve its aims. After the humiliation of the First World War, Italy was in political turmoil. On March the 23rd, 1919, Benito Mussolini and 200 supporters, many disillusioned former soldiers, gathered in the Piazza San Sepolcro in Milan. They formed a new nationalist movement, Fasci Italiani di Combattimento. Fascio 
meaning bundle or bunch indicated strength through unity. But combatimento, or fighting, showed the aggressive intent of the movement from the start. The black shirt became the iconic symbol of fascism. It summed up everything the movement wanted to represent. Uniformity, youth, action, glamour, violence, and death. At a veterans' meeting in Turin, Ettore Ovazza eagerly joined the Black Shirts. And Ettore Ovazza enters the fascist movement as part of a movement of veterans who are getting together and asking themselves, how can we prevent these terrible things that are happening from um, destroying the country we've uh, been fighting to, to help create? Uh, and so he was a natural recruit for the fascist movement. It was not at all unusual for Jews like Ettore Ovazza and his family to be fascists. The fascists, unlike the Nazis, were not anti-Semitic. One in three Italian Jews later joined the fascist party, and Mussolini's mistress was Jewish. They were attracted to fascism because Jews had been freed from the ghettos and given full equality by the nationalist government when Italy was unified in 1870. Now as a black shirt, Ettore Ovazza supported the fascist attack on those who seemed to be destroying the country he loved. The black shirts saw themselves as the front line against the socialist threat. You could not really be a regular member if you were in the right age group without being part of this militia. Now, in Italy, the black shirts were the basic core membership of the party. This was a kind of special party army or party militia. Ovazza played his part by helping to destroy trade union offices in Turin. These fascist attacks on socialism often had the open support of the police and army, as the liberal government was seen as too weak to stand up to the communist threat. But there was also some sympathy from the state, as fascism claimed it wanted to defend the state, bourgeois society, property and patriotic values, all those values that socialism deplored. The strongholds of this uncompromising fascism were in the cities of central and northern Italy. The motto of the black shirts was Mene Frego. They do not give a damn. They considered life cheap, just as it had been in the trenches. In Lombardy in December 1921, one of the most senior socialist leaders was kidnapped and beaten to death. Women and children were forced to watch, to learn the fate of those who opposed fascism. The local fascist bosses were not concerned with parliamentary procedures. They believed socialism could only be eradicated by force. The fascists didn't defeat the socialist councils in elections. They simply stormed the town halls. 
Socialists have lost control of the town hall forever. The fascist takeovers had a dramatic impact. By the end of 1921, the party had drawn from 20,000 to over 200,000 members. And it tasted electoral success too. 38 fascists, including Mussolini, were elected to parliament. Fascist support was surprisingly widespread. The socialists were beaten, the government was weak, and the army sympathetic. Mussolini realized he had an historic opportunity to strike. He decided to organize a show of strength against a liberal government in a mass march on Rome. 25,000 black shirts set off for the Italian capital, demanding power. It was an impressive show of strength. Fascism could still have been stopped, but the king, Victor Emmanuel, refused to call out the army to halt the march. The Russian Revolution and the execution of the Tsar had shocked the king. He chose the lesser of two evils and asked Mussolini to head a new coalition government. It's in the moderate political parties, the regular uh, parliamentary and more democratic parties, divided, relatively impotent, unable to cope with the situation in Italy. Therefore, what the king was doing in October 1922 was simply making the leader of the most uh, vigorous and dynamic new political movement parliamentary prime minister of a coalition government. The Italian government had backed down in the face of fascist violence. Though Mussolini led a constitutional government, and there were only three fascists in the cabinet, he ensured that he could rule by decree for the first year, and that he was in charge of all of Italy's police forces. The king had inadvertently opened the way to a full fascist state under Mussolini's leadership. The fascists moved quickly and ruthlessly against their political enemies. But Mussolini nearly threw it all away. One brazen act of violence went too far, even in the eyes of many fascists. In June 1924, the body of one of Mussolini's leading opponents, socialist deputy Giacomo Matteotti, was discovered in woods outside Rome. His murder had been arranged by Mussolini's close aides. This was a major atrocity. Liberal parliamentarian Giovanni Amendola launched stinging attacks on fascism in his newspaper Il Mondo. 39 million Italians are kneeling along the path of Matteotti from the site of his martyrdom to his final resting place. And today they will rise to defend those ideals that factions and tyranny cannot kill, but only strengthen and glorify. The first six months after Matteotti was murdered in June of 1924 were a very difficult period for Mussolini. Um, several fascists had deserted him, public opinion was very volatile. There was a real fear that he would be overthrown. Mussolini faced a stark choice, leaving power was stamping out all remaining dissent once and for all. He chose the latter. On January the 3rd, 1925, 
Mussolini strode confidently into Parliament. He did not even try to deny his role in Matteotti's death. I declare before all Italy that I assume full responsibility for what has happened. Italy wants peace and quiet and to get on with its work. I shall give it all these, if possible in love, but if necessary by force. The January 1925 speech is the, the revelatory moment when fascism embarks upon the path towards dictatorship and the totalitarian state. He does it through a series of laws which eliminate the opposition deputies from Parliament, which uh, increasingly censors the press, which uh, ultimately in 1926 leads to the dissolution of non-fascist parties and non-fascist trade unions, to the structures being put into place of a police state and a one-party state. One man did speak out, Amendola. The next day his newspaper, Il Mondo, said, This man, Mussolini, constitutes a pathological case, not foreseen in the Constitution. Everything is subordinated to his mad ambition. But in the new fascist order, no opposition was tolerated. Amendola was hunted down by the black shirts and viciously beaten. He was one of the most uh, effective spokesmen for the opposition and someone who refused to stop. He was soon silenced, beaten to death. In a final insult, a group of fascists sang cheerfully as they wrecked his house after his death. Mussolini was relieved to be rid of him. We had only one foe, an inflexible one, Giovanni Battista Amendola. He wanted to overthrow us in order to found a democracy. Democracy was now finished in Italy. All right, so that's, that's the beginning of, um, of fascism in Italy. Uh, and of course, you know, the, the documentary goes on. And like always, I will put the description, uh, uh, the link in the description. Este, but you notice several things, though, like, you know, they were being violated on the streets to try to get some, you know, political uh, stuff moving and stuff. And then they went and, and, and confronted the, uh, the emperor. And instead of quash, uh, squashing the, the you know, not the rebellion, but, you know, you know, this group of 2,000 men or whatever who are known for beating people up and all this, instead of sending in the army, he, he, he tried to appease the mob. And, you know, usually when you try to appease, when you try to appease the mob, you can't, <laughs> you can't appease the mob. The, so, so you can see how the threat of, they, just the threat of violence alone got, um, got them something that they desired. You know, he got the, a position in the in the um, in the administration, let's say, right? But then again, there was only two two members of of um, the parliament who were who were um, part of the fa uh, fascist party, right? You know, and then it all goes on from there. But just the threat of violence, the threat of violence was enough. For the emperor or whoever the you know whoever was in charge to to surrender power, you know what I'm saying? 
I said that kind of reminds me a little bit on the way um, the way unions work, like labor unions and stuff. You know, they they don't threaten violence; they threaten strikes. But threat, right? They threaten, and then with the threat of a strike, with the threat of uh, of whatever, right? A, a, a strike basically is that's all they they do mostly. As the um, the threat of it brings the the other side to the negotiating table or whatever, but it's a tactic used. You know, look, it's a tactic used by the fascist to get what they want. And look, it's a tactic used by, let's say, the labor unions to get what they want, right? Uh, by, by threatening. Now, political uh, rhetoric, you know, it, it can be civil, right? And it should be civil. You know, we, we live in a civil society, right? But it, it has been very volatile lately, you know? Um, you hear stuff that you weren't used to hearing, let's say, 10 years ago. You know, you somebody might say, like, somebody didn't like George Bush or whatever, and they might, you know, uh, fuck George Bush or whatever, right? And, you know, ha-ha, whatever. But it's been, it it's gone so... Um, it's gone so far, like, nowadays you can say anything about any politician or, and, like, def, like disgusting whatever, right? Even violent rhetoric, you hear it a lot, you know? And, and that, that rhetoric, that violent rhetoric, politi violent political rhetoric is, is dangerous. Because although, you know, when we jab at each other, you know, the guys, let's say, some guys are, you know, some of my friends are Democrats, some are Republicans, but we can all, you know, joke with each other about our political, um, you know, of our political ideologies with no, you know, no beef, no, no sweat, no worry about nothing, right? Pero out there, you know, out there in the, in the generic world, you know, there is some people who might not be mentally stable or are angry at something or or need uh, need to vent or whatever who who these these things might affect you know who who take these things to, you know to to another level you know you see videos of people attacking you know republicans or trump supporters or whatever you know you see antifa people attacking uh patriots or whatever right and then you see blm people attacking whoever the fuck really you know these things uh, um um it's it's violence against someone uh, and mostly it's politi politically aimed you know like let's go destroy the white neighborhood right let's say blm goes to destroy the the uppity white neighborhood it's political right because you're white and we're oppressed by white people or whatever right so it's a political thing antifa same thing they show up to you know it all started years ago when when certain conservative speakers let's say would want to speak at berkeley or whatever and then there's a riot outside because of these these groups of people many different groups but antifa started in those times or probably even way before then but that's when they really started showing up on the scene and causing a ruckus and breaking stuff and whatever you know and uh and uh just real quick funny how antifa right stands for anti-fascist and yet they're the ones using fascist tactics right because they're the ones beating up people who don't think as they do right they see somebody in a maga hat they crack them on 
or they jump them or whatever. They spray bear mace in their face, whatever, right? You know, and then of course, people, you know, when you see, when you see um, people getting attacked or whatever, then of course there's going to be some badasses on the other side who get together and say, you know what? All right, fire with fire, right? These like these guys like to show up to our events and fight and beat up innocent people, defenseless people. All right, so we're going to do the same thing, but other side. So then the other guys, you know, on the other side started showing up with bats and, and helmets and stuff, and they start cracking each other, right? But the, the, the violence, the political violence. Now, now, if you can see it as, you know, however you see it as, you know, in, in, in the rule of law and, 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 and all that, it's like you got the aggressor and then you got the defender, right? So in each instance, wherever the violence occurs or whatever, there's an aggressor and there's a defender, right? So I'm for the defender. If, 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 if there's innocence being attacked, I'm going to defend innocence, right? So I'm all for people defending themselves. It's easy, to, it's, easily, it's easy to tell aggression, right? Because words aren't violence. Whatever they would try to tell you, words aren't violence. Uh, once you start swinging shit, once you start chunking chingazos, that's violence, okay? And, uh, and political violence. Now, that's, that's dangerous. Why? Because there's plenty of examples of, of political violence. Este, now, uh, you, see how, you see how when they got in power, right, they started kind of like cleaning house. Well, I, I'm, you know, when you, see the, when you see the whole thing, you'll see how they kind of start cleaning the house, right? You know, can you imagine? Like, can you imagine, right? We're in, te uh, we're in Texas, right? Governor Abbott just won, and everybody who was on the last administration, you know, he starts whacking them and shit. They start finding them dead and shit. Like, what? Can you imagine that shit? That's what they were doing. Now, yeah, that, oh, that was a long time ago, but no. It, it's, you know, yes, it happened a long time ago, but what says, uh, it, you know, that it can't happen again? Or, or what, are we immune um, from all that kind of, from that kind of stuff, right? Uh, no, I don't think uh, I don't think uh, <laughs> I don't think we are immune uh, uh, because it, history teaches us that these things happen over and over and over in cycles and stuff. But it usually happens, you know, um, uh, the, the way society, um, um, the way society is structured, the the the, the beliefs of the people and all that that determines a lot whether um, we end up. Let's say like some of those other stories in history. I can't even I can't even begin to think of, of, of that happening here, you know? Assassinations of political figures and stuff. Imagine that. Like, you know, it takes a pretty sick <laughs> it takes a pretty sick um, you know, person to to want to do something like that, but of course there's always been power hungry people. Now luckily in our system here you know, it's it's really hard for somebody to whack people out, right? So, you know, that's a good thing for us. That's a really good thing. It's that, so now we're going to jump over to Germany because, of course, you know, political violence, uh, it has. we're just going to jump through a bunch of examples. But on the same, you know, sort of on the same thing, you know, same theme, the political violence um, of power and governance and all this stuff, right? Because we're talking about um, you know, politics, or, or not politics in the way we normally talk about it, but, you know, the way we would talk about it here on Thesis, baby.
you know what time it is all right so let's jump over to to the german uh, to the germany uh nazi party uh and let's look at a little example of, of a little bit of examples of um violence political violence that came from their political party right so so the original right the original fascist movement was like a gang but then they became political when they got a lot of when they had 200,000 members they say oh shit we can vote we can vote some of our guys in or whatever so they become an official political party uh, the Nazi is a little bit different right but they are a political party right when you go to the ballot box uh, you're voting for who so-and-so he's a Democrat so-and-so he's a Republican so-and-so is a Nazi like that a real political party an actual political party okay so let's see what kind of shenanigans they were doing let's see what a uh, little low uh pinch of hitler was going on uh, was doing um and uh, this is in, in historical terms it's called the night of the long knives which in a little let me give you just a little lay it out a little bit so um it's it's basically he came after his political enemies <laughs> <laughs> Basic in a simple, right? Let me put it in a simple thing. He came after a political enemy, nigga, marked a bunch of people. Okay, so let's uh, let's go here, and I believe this is also from the um, History Channel. So uh, let's go ahead and see what they got to tell us. By 1933, Hitler's become Chancellor of Germany and he suspended the country's constitution. His enabling act has given him the ability to circumvent democracy and do anything he wants. Among the first things he chooses to address are the threats to his power, both inside and outside his party. The biggest internal threat is Ernst Röhm. Röhm is one of the earliest Nazi party members and a close friend of Hitler. He is also the founder and leader of the SA Brownshirts, the party's army of thugs whose bully boy tactics have been so significant in Hitler's rise. There was a real bid for power from within the Nazi party, uh, from the brown shirts. They, with some justification, had seen themselves as the battering ram that had opened the gates of power for the Nazis. By 1934, the SA are four and a half million strong and massively outnumber the German army. The team around Hitler become increasingly concerned that Röhm will use them to seize power for himself. Röhm starts to make speeches um, calling for um, the SA to become a people's army. And this makes the um, German army very nervous indeed. And Röhm has committed another crime. Germany is still an intensely conservative country. And Röhm is a homosexual. In secret, Hermann Goering, now Prussian Minister of the Interior, and Heinrich Himmler, head of the SS, ask Himmler's deputy, Reinhard Heydrich, 
to assemble a dossier to discredit Rome. By the end of June 1934, amazingly, the evidence that Rome is a traitor has been found. There's this documentation that shows he's the recipient of millions of marks from the French government to try and overthrow Hitler on their behalf. Of course, it's completely manufactured evidence. Armed with the information from Goering, Heydrich and Himmler, Hitler organises a deadly trap. He orders all the SA leaders to attend a meeting in the pretty holiday town of Bad Wiesay in the far south of Germany. In the early hours, Hitler, some of his entourage and a couple of state police arrive at a lakeside hotel in the town. About 6.30 in the morning, Hitler charges into the hotel, uh, brandishing a pistol. In a scene which would astonish the German people, who believed they were voting for a respectable politician, the Chancellor of Germany can't resist taking matters into his own hands. In a sign of his fury over Rome's supposed treachery, Hitler personally leads the team to arrest him. He doesn't even wait for his backup, the SS, to arrive. He makes his way to Rome's room, opens the door and says, get up, Ernst, you're under arrest for high treason. Sleep, dazzled and bewildered, Rome doesn't understand what's going on. Now, in the next door room, there's another senior SA man, and with the SA man in bed is a young SA man. And, of course, this is deemed to be flagrant and uh, a sign of how degraded the SA had become and how corrupt it had become. Over the next 24 hours, 200 other senior SA officers are rounded up. Many are shot. Others including Rome, are sent to Munich's Stadelheim prison. But it isn't just the internal opponents Hitler deals with. He and Goebbels have been compiling a list of political opponents and old enemies they also consider to be traitors. Now they trigger the next purge a code-worded phone call from Goebbels to Goering sets in motion what will become one of the most notorious events in the history of the Nazis. The following day, Hitler hosts a tea party in the Garden of the Chancellery in Berlin for his cabinet and their families. While this tea party is going on, the playing out of The Night of the Long Knives is almost pure Godfather 2. It is like a gangster film. There are people being massacred. I mean, literally just butchered, shot, killed, and beheaded. Amongst those killed, 
are Gustav von Kahr, one of the triumvirate who had sabotaged the Beer Hall Putsch in 1923. He was hauled out of his home, taken to a forest in Dachau outside Munich where the concentration camp was, and battered to death with axes. former Chancellor, General von Schleicher, who was shot down in his own home when he answers the door, and his wife, who tries to throw herself across in front of the bullets, she's cut down by a hail of bullets too. A music critic called Willy Schmidt was uh, mistaken for an SA man called Willy Schmidt and was shot down in Munich. There were lots of cases like this. During that afternoon, Hitler gives the order to kill Ernst Röhm. He's shot dead by the SS in his cell. At one point during his tea, uh, someone's meant to have come in and just gently informed him that everything had been carried out, and he does not. It was Hitler's settling of accounts the night of Long Nights with the right and with the left. And it was serving notice on the world that Germany was now ruled by gangsters. The Night of the Long Knives is announced by Hitler himself in a speech to the government on the 13th of July, 1934. Official records state that only 77 have died, but really, it's 400. And Hitler now justifies what he has done. In this hour, I was responsible for the fate of the German people. And thereby, I became the supreme judge of the German people. I gave the order to shoot the ringleaders and their treason. Hitler's actions and words hammer home that he is now judge and jury, with the power to decide who lives and who dies. The Night of Long Knives gave a notice not only to Germany, but to the world, that you oppose the Nazis' the slightest whim at the very peril of your own life. If they were prepared to cut down those who had once been nearest and dearest to them, they were prepared to cut down anyone. Two weeks later, the 87-year-old President Hindenburg passes away. Hitler abolishes the presidency and declares himself supreme leader of Germany. The Führer. Wow. Well, of course, we all can agree that that Hitler was a nut. But when you look at um, how the things happen, right? So first of all, those the brown shirts, the SS, uh, they were a, a, a paramilitary wing. They weren't even part of the army. They were just like a group of of people, you know, that got so big. And but then they had funding and they had guns and they were, you know, what I'm saying 
So they became really powerful, as they, and that's who they were, you know, a, a paramilitary group, you know. Um, I don't know, the closest thing that we can think of here is uh, because they're organized. So maybe some state militias or stuff like that, you know, although the state militias, I mean, I don't know their numbers or whatever, but, you know, this, this, the, the SS was, um, as the, uh, a lot, a lot of them, right? Or was it the SA? Uh, anyhow. Este, and uh, you see how, you know, clean house, right? Political uh, violence against certain uh, people uh, or, or arresting them and stuff like that. You know what I'm saying? Um, I, I just, it trips me out because, you know, when we look at Hitler, like through the eyes of history, we just think of a nut that killed a bunch of people and all this, right? But I just want us to remember that this guy was a political, you know, they voted for him or whatever, or he got appointed or, or no, at that, at that point, I think he had already like took power, but you know, he moved up, people supported him and he moved up a lot. So what I'm saying is whether or not, let's say people physically voted for him on a piece of paper, like, yeah, I vote for you to be my president or our leader or whatever. The support that he had was like them voting for him, let's say, even if they didn't have an election of some sort, right? But the, the the rhetoric, the 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 violent rhetoric about about our enemies, right? Uh, who those who oppose us, right? Those who oppose me or our party. Uh, oh, that's one thing I wanted to point out is notice how these these movement, not movements, but like the um, the the fascist party, right? It was a it became a party, and uh, as you learn more about Mussolini, you'll see that it, it you know. He didn't get he didn't get to what he wanted to do in the end, but it was it, these things are all about the party, like the Nazi party when they when they gained control of the parliament and everything when the, they had one party system, they became the one party rule. That's when shit went bad. Same thing in um, in Italy, you know. Same thing that happens in in the Soviet Union. One party rule, and then it's. It's about the party, what the party wants, you know. Since the party runs all aspects of the government, you know, then we can say, well, it's what the government wants. No, but it's the ideal of who's running the government. It's the party's ideals who run the government. You know, it's the Nazi party, the fascist party, the communist party, official parties like the Democrat Party, the Republican Party. Because when we hear about these stories of, of these, you know, the Nazi party and stuff, it's almost like mythical almost, you know. And I just want to let us remember that this is the actual group of, of, of people who are voting and trying to get into elections and, and um, positions of power and stuff with this ideology, right? And then the rhetoric, right? Political violence where they think it's okay to attack the other uh, people who don't think the way they do or whatever, right? Very dangerous rhetoric. Um Political violence is very dangerous in and of itself uh, because of, you know, hey, we don't want people to get hurt, especially because um, their political views might be different than someone else's. You know, also a civil society cannot continue um, if, if the population behaves this way with each other. And of course, division and anger and hatred and all these things towards different people or different groups of people or whatever... As the, you know, we've seen it in history um, and we've 
we, we know where it leads. We know where it leads if we don't, you know, kind of, kind of tamper it, tamp it down, or, or get it under control or whatever, right? All right. So now we want to jump. So we're all, you know, a political violence. Let's jump over to, um, uh, to, to uh, Stalin over in the Soviet Union. Sorry, I was thinking because um, you know, y'all know I'm a huge fan of the Soviet of Soviet history, you know, I just, I just, there's just so much that I, that I, I mean, you know, not I love that because of what they did, but it's just so much there and I just, I'm always digging into it. Uh, so we're going to go to Stalin now. <clears throat> now this guy, of course, we know what he did uh, and, and there's a lot of history to him, you know, uh, again, I will put the links to all of these videos and they are, uh, some of them are longer than the clips that I play. But so he went and he did a little cleansing of him of his own, <laughs> you know, um, the Red Terror. You know, the other one was the Night of the Knives, and over here he did what what, what they called the Red Terror when he was cleaning house. Same thing, Stalin. He went after you know uh, anyone, anybody who he thought might be a threat, as to anybody who opposed, you know, anybody who showed opposition. Uh, shit, even family members, you know, even family members weren't safe from this, from this guy. He was a piece of work, this guy, you know. Stalin, so now we're jumping over to the Soviet Union and going to look at some political violence. And this political violence is coming from the top, you know. Este, but, but wait, wait, the brown, the, the black shirts, right, the, the fascists were a gang first, so they had no political power until they moved up. The Nazis, the brown, uh, the brown shirts, the SS, and them, they, they were a paramilitary group. I right? said so they didn't have no power, but they had power in numbers. Um, and I think as the Nazi party grew, then they were using these tactics also. They were using fascist tactics also, as them, you know, to silence their opposition. Uh, and then, of course, in Soviet Russia. The the Communist Party also used fascist fascist tactics against their political enemies. They would punish them. They would starve them. You know, they starved the Ukrainians. Um, all kinds of stuff, right? So now we're gonna look at Stalin's Red Terror, and we're gonna see we're gonna see what this guy was up to, right? And so we're just looking at different examples of of. And remember, these are people who were put in power because they had support or whatever. Now. Mind you, in Soviet in the Soviet um, Revolution, it was a revolution that happened, uh, but there was some major support. But then, of course, when you give support uh, a little bit too much support, then these power-hungry people will take. You know, you give and they take, take, take. But because they are power-hungry, and it's always about power with these type of folks. All right, so let's see what this guy did, uh, Stalin. Este Red Terror. Uh, who do we thank here? Um, UATV. Not sure. Um, Ukrainian TV. Okay, something like that. Uh, so we want to thank them uh, for this. Uh, let's see what they got to say. In modern society, any terrorist activity, physical violence against people is absolutely unacceptable. 
and prosecuted in accordance with the law. However, right from the beginning of the last century, terror was a part of the politics of left-wing radical parties, especially when they seized power, as terror and violence became the main means of struggle against their political opponents. The measures of violence applied by the Russian Bolsheviks against various social groups that were declared class enemies or accused of organizing counter-revolutionary activities were called the Red Terror. When the Russian Revolution began and Vladimir Lenin arrived in Russia, the issue arose of seizing power and the development of revolutionary events. During 1917, there was justification of certain provisions. How would administrative functions be carried out? How would the power of the Soviets be exercised? How would relations between different social groups form? When the Bolshevik Revolution took place in October 1917, the question arose, how is power to be retained? The main goal and the main means of retaining power was social change in society, which was supposed to entail the destruction of socially hostile class elements. Lenin substantiated the thesis that terror should be carried out against class hostile elements. Why did the term red terror appear? In order to justify social killings and methods of social engineering for the destruction of class enemies. Accordingly, the Bolsheviks said that the whites had started white terror and red terror became the answer to this white terror. In fact, the terror which later received the name red terror was the other side of the Bolshevik regime. The slogans, all power to the Soviets, land to the peasants, factories to the workers, peace and the end of the war, were the main tool for ensuring this terror. The terror was aimed against those social groups that were considered an obstacle in the construction of the Bolshevik communist regime. The Council of People's Commissars legitimized violent actions by issuing the decree on Red Terror. It ordered the liberation of the Soviet Republic from class enemies by isolating them in concentration camps, as well as the physical destruction of all those involved in the White Guard organizations, conspiracies and rebellions. Russian historiography confines Red Terror to the period of the Civil War of 1917 to 1923 only on the territory of Soviet Russia. According to Ukrainian scientists, the Bolshevik authorities also acted on the territory of Ukraine and the Red Terror here continued until the death of Joseph Stalin in 1953. Ukrainian historiography mentions these boundaries until 1953 because terror was carried out constantly throughout the social experiment. Terror did not cease in 1921. It merely changed its form. It continued throughout the 1920s, and the events from 1928 to 1939 are mass terror, which reached its peak in 1938 to 1939. This phase of terror in Ukraine began in 1928. The famous Shakti trial and the fight against the former industrial intelligentsia engineers 
Furthermore, this phase is associated with the first purge of the Ukrainian intelligentsia, especially those who took part in the events of 1917 to 1921. This case is connected with Efremov and the Union for the Liberation of Ukraine. And then this is terror that was directed against the Ukrainian peasantry. The Holodomor took place in 1932 to 1933. It was the manifestation of terror which took 8 million lives. The same genocide of the Crimean Tatars can be attributed to the manifestations of red terror in relation to the whole population, the same the eviction of Bulgarians, Greeks and Germans. The methods of red terror were used again in January 1918, when Red Army troops broke into Kiev and staged a massacre here. According to various estimates, about 300 people became victims of the Bolsheviks. Punitive actions took place in Crimea in the winter of 1917 to 1918. An illustrative example is Crimea and the events associated with the destruction of officers of the Black Sea Navy. When officers were drowned in ships, when officers were killed and officers' wives were killed with their entire families. This took place when the Bolsheviks captured power in Crimea for the first time. The terror was very cruel and the leader of the Crimean Tatars, Chilebi Jihan, was killed. During the terror, more than 1,000 famous revolutionaries of Crimea were repressed. Those who opposed the Bolsheviks and took a pro-Ukrainian position and supported the Central Rada, which opposed the Bolsheviks. Those Crimean Tatars who supported the creation of a regional Crimean Tatar autonomous region were simply shot. This terror caused strong hatred by the local population on the peninsula of the Bolshevik authorities in Crimea. During the period of 1917 to 1920, the Bolshevik government entered Ukraine several times and entered with great military power and large punitive expeditions. In Ukraine, the decree on the Red Terror of September 5, 1918 was not immediately implemented, as it was a part of the Ukrainian state headed by Hetman Pavlo Skoropatsky. At that time, there were no Bolshevik troops on the territory of Ukraine. In Ukraine, the implementation of the provisions of this decree was only carried out from December 1918. The All-Ukrainian Emergency Commission was established in Kharkiv, that is the analog of the All-Russian one. An emergency commission is a special body, an emergency commission to combat banditry, speculation, sabotage. It was created in order to fight our national movement. And they had their own detailed structure, right down to local level, a separate one from the railways, another for the fronts. In the course of January or February 1919, most of the territory of Ukraine was occupied by the Red Army. From that moment on, violence and terror became the main methods of a certain Soviet power here. These were arrests of representatives of the local bourgeoisie, bank employees, owners of industrial enterprises, representatives of liberal, democratic, constitutional, monarchist parties, representatives of the intelligentsia, 
It was a kind of social selection for class conformity by origin, place of work and belonging to a certain social class. Thus, elements that could probably be hostile to Soviet power were identified. Or they carried out preventive arrests in order to intimidate, destroy morally or to simply murder people. As a rule, demonstrative murders were carried out in order to intimidate the population so that there were no demonstrations against the power of the ruling party. Such demonstrative murders took place in Kharkiv, Odessa, Vinnytsia, Zhitomyr and other cities around Ukraine. As for the rural population, this decree was implemented through a surplus, when food was forcibly taken from peasants. In exchange, they were to receive manufactured goods in order to provide the city with food. But due to the fact that the peasants did not want to give their goods in vain, there were coups against the Bolsheviks, bread was hidden away, and so on. Representatives of the Bolshevik authorities in rural areas carried out the destruction of socially hostile elements, the prosperous rural population and the landowners. It was mostly killing and use of preventive remedies. Another form of terror that was applied to the Ukrainian peasantry was the burning of villages where there were manifestations of anti-Soviet and anti-Bolshevik uprisings. The Bolsheviks used a system of collective responsibility via the taking of hostages to fight against well-off peasants called kulaks. They appointed so-called defendants, took one person out of 30 houses, and in the event of disobedience by anyone, they would be shot. The attacks on the peasantry by the Bolshevik authorities forced them to leave their homes and unite into large military groups to protect their interests. If it was not possible to suppress these uprisings by using weapons, Soviet Cheka officers used outright provocations. Amnesty is a provocation. They sent their own officers, used fake people, falsified correspondence, fake letters were disseminated. Let's say they come to a village, hand out leaflets, get ready for an uprising. Petlura or Tutunik are already close, and they watch, keep watching. This one, that one and another have already grouped together. They've gone into the barns to dig something out. So this one and another are detained, arrested, taken away. The actions of the Bolsheviks in Ukraine were particularly cruel. People were not just killed, they were tortured to death. Another issue related to the Red Terror is the composition of those bodies that made up the Emergency Commission. As the Bolsheviks themselves analyzed, a huge part of the representatives of these bodies that carried out the Red Terror and had a revolutionary sense of justice were representatives of the criminal world. There were criminals, people of marginal fates, who had sadistic inclinations and enjoyed the fact that they wielded power. They considered themselves to be people who were entitled to decide the destinies of other human beings. The Jewish massacres in Ukraine which were committed by Red Guards were a common occurrence. With regard to the Red Terror meted out to national minorities, we can talk about the pogroms that Bolshevik units committed against the Jews. For example, that part of the 1st Cavalry Army, which was headed by Budonny. These pogroms were then attributed to representatives of Petlura's forces and representatives of the Ukrainian army. Famous Ukrainian figures became the victims of the Bolshevik Red Terror of that time. Director of the Ukrainian Academy of Arts Alexander Murashko, writer Dmitro Markovich, poet Rihori Chuprinka, composer Mikola Leontovich, and many others.
If we analyze the number of victims of the Red Terror, then some researchers give a figure of 1,300,000 victims at the hands of the Bolsheviks. And this is only a selection that was carried out during the revolution of 1917 to 1921. That is for the entire Russian Empire. In Ukraine, the number is slightly smaller. The Bolshevik Red Terror in Ukraine, which began in 1917, was of a tragic and catastrophic scale. Because during the national liberation struggle of 1917 to 1920, Ukrainians felt managed to get a feel of what independence was. Step by step, this idea was nurtured among the elite and began to spread among the population. But this didn't suit the new masters of the Kremlin. For almost four decades, Bolshevism tried tirelessly, through various repressive means, to erase this idea from the consciousness of Ukrainians. All right. So, you see, um, <clears throat> the Ukrainians didn't want to go along with the whole thing, and the state punished them, right? By taking their stuff and, and you know, punishing them, killing mass graves. I mean, I was watching the video, and, I mean, you see people getting shot, dude. Mass graves, tractors and shit, dude. It's horrible, man. But political violence. Why? Because they didn't... They didn't conform to, you know, the way the state or the way the, the party, the Bolsheviks, wanted to, to rule over the people. You know, the peasantry, they called, they called them the peasants, but the peasants are the people who live out in the country, let's say. Like, for instance, if we look at it in today's terms, let's say, you know, people out in the country who got land and they're just out there. You know, maybe, and, and see, the word peasant is kind of like, you know, now sure, back then there was absolute poverty and stuff right but then the kulaks were the farmers and you know they they maintained and stuff but but they the the state came in and used um political terror you know political violence to to as to assert their their power um over the people you know and notice how on several occasions that we've heard already how the local authorities turned a blind eye to when um, this stuff started happening around them, you know, almost uh, even kind of just justifying the violence or justifying, um, you know, people being arrested or killed or whatever. Why? Because, because no, no, they're they're against what we're what we're for, you know. They're dangerous. They're against what we're for, you know, as the the rhetoric, the political rhetoric. Um, or whatever, you know, to to make people as to kind of legitimize the violence, right? Justify, legitimize the violence. So when pe if you hear, if um, let's say from the state, right, the message was coming from the state, hey, these people that we're arresting, they're they're plotting against us, you know, they're plotting, they're they're conspiring against us or whatever, you know. So they justify. That's why we take them out. You know, and they were brutal. Stalin, um, all of them, Esteb, Lenin, all they were just brutal, brutal. The party was brutal. They used brutality to get, um, you know, people to to succumb to their power, to to you know to to give up their their um, their liberties or whatever, you know, to succumb to the boot, the jackboot on their neck. Right. Political violence. 
it's crazy, man. But it it exists. It it has it has always it has always existed, right? And we're looking back and we're looking back in time now. This was a very horrible time, you know, World War Two time era. Stem. But it doesn't, you know, we're, we we like history here, right? And we talk about how we've talked about before how I I think not I think but that life is cyclical, right? We look at history and you see cycles. You see things that happened before and they happen again and they happen again. Behavior, human behavior, is cyclical, all of this stuff, right? So as the you know we can see that, um, you know that stuff that's happened before. If we're not careful, it can happen again. I mean, you know, the violence that happens here, the political violence that happens here in America hasn't been about assassinations and stuff. I mean, yeah, they, you know, we've had presidents assassinated, uh, you know, then his brother got assassinated, right? He was, a, he was, um, who was he, attorney general at the time? Este, who else? Uh, I think uh, Theodore Roosevelt got shot or something. Uh, then of course, but, but but I'm talking about modern time. You know, modern times. You know, uh, there hasn't really been much here. It's been tamped down. I can't think of anything that sticks out other than you know the JFK assassination, those type of things, that type of thing. But other than that, you know, we don't see much of it, right? In in our nation. But shit, we look just we look to our neighbor just south of the border, and we we see. A lot of political violence, right? So now we're going to look over there and see what kind of stuff is going on. But now in modern times, we ain't looking. We ain't looking back to the to the twenties, thirties, and forties. You know, like we were a minute ago with Hitler and all that stuff, right? Now we're looking modern, modern times, right? A little closer to, a little closer to home, even next door, right? So let's go to our friends at Channel Four News. Um, not quite an actual like news channel, but that's what they call themselves. But it's good. It's a British. Um, oh wait, it's a British public broadcast service. So it is actually, I guess, a real. <laughs> I thought it was, but anyhow. All right. So now we're going to see the political violence in Mexico, and let's see how it compares, if it does or whatever. But let's see what we can learn from what's going on down south. In almost any other country, the murder of more than 100 politicians would send shockwaves around the world. But in Mexico, this is the brutal reality of life in the country's general election. More than 100 politicians and candidates have been assassinated, and hundreds more dropped out since election season began in September. In one of the most violent countries in the world, running for office can be a death sentence. Last year was Mexico's bloodiest year on record. More than 29,000 people were murdered. That's an average of 79 people being killed every single day. Cartels are intimidating and punishing anyone who dares to stand up to them. So why is there so much violence in Mexico's politics? Welcome to So What? The series looking at stories you should know more about. Subscribe to our channel to keep up to date with our videos. And if you found this interesting or know a story you think we should be covering, Leave a comment. In this video, we're going to look at the huge rise in violence around the national elections in Mexico and why this year looks like it's going to be the deadliest in the country's history. 
So what's happening in Mexico? On July the 1st, the country went to the polls to throw out the ruling party and elect the first left-wing leader in decades. But it was an election characterized by extreme violence. Cartels had been burning politicians' homes in broad daylight. One candidate was shot in the head in public as he posed for a selfie. Almost every political party has been affected and it's all part of a wave of intimidation and corruption. More than 600 politicians withdrew from the race, fearing for their lives. So why is all of this happening? Mexico is no stranger to brutal violence, especially around the time of elections. But this year has been particularly bad, and it's mainly down to two things. The first reason is that this was the biggest election in the country's history, with more than 3,400 seats up for grabs. To help us understand this, we chatted to Dr. Benjamin Smith from the University of Warwick. We've got three, effectively three levels of elections. You've got federal level elections, so for the president, gubernatorial elections, so for the state, uh, and then you've got local elections for the municipality. Now, usually these have been held over the president's six-year term. For this year, they've started to hel hold them all at the same time. Murders which would have been spread out over a presidential term have been concentrated in the last year or so. For the gangs and cartels, elections are the perfect time to exercise their control over local officials. That often means murdering those who vow to tackle crime, paying off potential threats and intimidating others into standing down. In one town, the entire police force was arrested on suspicion of murder after a mayoral candidate was killed. That's how deep the cartels go. The line between the political party uh, and organized crime is, is zero. There, there is not. Political control has come absolutely key to their operation. But why has there been such a huge rise in the last few years? To understand this, we have to go back to the start of Mexico's war on drugs and the history of the drugs trade. Although low-level drug smuggling had existed throughout the 20th century, by the 1970s, due to massive demand from the United States, it had skyrocketed. It uh, really got going uh, after the counterculture in the 60s and 70s. And from the 70s through to the 80s, the state effectively controlled drug trafficking. Now, this was pulled apart in 1985. So this has kind of spread the drug trafficking organizations throughout Mexico. This huge rise in drug trafficking created cartels, huge criminal organizations dedicated to smuggling, money laundering, and murder. By 2006, the president Felipe Calderon had called in the army to fight the cartels. That signaled the start of Mexico's war on drugs. And this is one of the reasons why things have got so much worse. His tactic was to go after the kingpins who controlled the biggest gangs. But when the bosses were killed, imprisoned or extradited, it unleashed a whole new wave of violence. It created a vacuum where the big cartels split apart in the fight for control. Around 2000, you had about four major cartels. Now you've got about nine major cartels and around 200 semi-autonomous uh, organized crime groups. So will the election actually change anything? This is where a large amount of Mexico has hope. President Andre Manuel Lopez Obrador that he's going to fight corruption and violence. En comprometernos a que terminemos con esa corrupción, con ese cáncer que está destruyendo al país. One of his ways of doing this is by redistributing wealth to reduce poverty. This could stop poorer Mexicans turning to organized crime 
Another way he could change things is by creating an amnesty for gang members. This is a kind of radical change in, 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 in the kind of political compass of Mexico. He knows there are hundreds of thousands of Mexicans who, one way or another, uh, have got involved in elements uh, of organized crime and want protection from prosecution in order to kind of extricate themselves from this. Lopez Obrador hasn't said exactly how he's going to implement his policies. And while long-term reform could help reduce the violence and corruption, it doesn't show any signs of stopping in the short term. Lopez Obrador will have to try and fix a situation that many think is unfixable. Viva Mexico! The hope is that drug trafficking organizations will, instead of murdering candidates, will basically attempt to make deals uh, with the candidates that have won. It's really what's going to be important is the first two years of Lopez uh, of um, Lopez Obrador's uh, tenure, whether he can put in place and implement uh, his policies to try to uh, improve the security situation. All right. So, damn. <laughs> oh shit, nigga. Man, damn, they be making fools all day long over there, mayors and shit. I mean, we already know that, but maybe some of you out there don't know that. Like, maybe kind of heard of it. Like, I like to, you know, stay on top of Mexico because, uh, you know, our buddy Fabian is down there. So I always like to keep track of, of as much as I can, at least of the violence and the political violence and stuff like that down there. Because it gets pretty bad. I mean, look, these are all politicians that they were talking, you know, 140 or whatever. Right. But that's that's not to mention all the countless other, you know, police uh, or, in, or or shop owners or who, all the people who get in in you know in the in the crossfire, but since we're sticking to the political violence part, right? Look at that. Look look how look how a society can degenerate. You know when you you know if you've seen Narcos, um, you know you understand uh, Narcos Mexico. You know you understand how they divided up the country, the the the, the big cartels, and you know the the military first controlled all the drug trade or whatever, right? But you see how how they divide up the power and then in, within those within those um, plazas, right? They call the plazas, which is like the territories. You know, then they had the, the political power. They would, they would, you know, get governors and whatever, right? But by using violence, political violence. And then that's just right next door to us. You know... Luckily, you know, so we like to look at things all kinds of ways here at Thesis, right? We look at things scientifically, historically, whatever, right? So when we look at stuff like sociological, right, um, um, psychological, este, you can see how, how, because I've always wondered, and we talked a little bit about this before, you know, but since we brought up the Nazis earlier, I've always wondered how could it be that normal people, right, um, can start seeing each other in in ways like 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 because because see the Jews were were seen right were uh, at least by the Nazis were seen as like a disease were seen as vermin you know were seen as ugh, you know like ugh, they're a scourge on society look at these people right and uh, and unfortunately a lot of the folks must have felt you know not a lot of people's Stood up and talked, you know, stood up against that stuff. That's why it continued to happen, you know, because when when 
all it takes is for good men, right? Um, this is a quote or something like, all it takes is for good men to stay quiet is for, you know, to evil, for evil to, to win, right? If we all stay quiet and we don't say nothing, ah, it's all good and it's all good. What, what, what is it? Just whatever. And then before you know it, it's too late. Right? So that's in a perfect example of, of what can happen if our anger and our divisions aren't tamed is, you know, Kristallnacht. Uh, or, or what happened to the Jews. Or what happened to the political... Um, as the opposition in Soviet Union, you know the political opposition in uh, in uh, Italy, right? In as the Mussolini's Italy. In, in in any tyrannical society, they have to get rid of any threat to the power because it's about power. So they use violence to to achieve their goals of power. But once in power or on their way to power, you know. But once in power, forget about it. Because now they have control of police forces or whatever, right? Armies. You know, and if and if their and if their mentality is power and ruling over the people and tyrannical because look, you know, I, I was gonna play some um Fidel Castro stuff too, but look, these guys usually always start with big, beautiful, bright ideas. Fidel Castro used to talk about the Constitution and we're going to be a democratic society because Bautista was, you know, was a was an emperor and he kind of just ruled and then it was just rich people and companies that owned the land and all the people were poor. So, you know, the revolution was, hey, let's take our society back. And he was talking about democracy. He was talking about we're going to have votes, we're going to have a constitution and all this. And lo and behold, he was power hungry and he didn't fulfill his thing. And he used a lot of political violence also. He arrested opposition. He arrested anybody who, who would, you know, who wasn't, you know, first of all, anybody who was a threat would, was gone, you know, and anybody who wouldn't um, succumb to the power, right, who wouldn't uh, agree to be, you know, to the power structure or whatever would also be taken out, right? Violence, political violence, because then you scare people into, into staying quiet. I mean, because self-preservation is, you know, people are, hey, I want to fucking live. I ain't going to say shit, right? That's what people are thinking. Now, me, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a cowboy. I'm a cowboy. I might be a martyr. You never know. But, um, you know, people, that, that threat of force, that threat of, of death, that threat of jail, that threat of all that stuff, you know, people will, will adjust really quick for self-preservation. And uh, unfortunately, that adjusting of self-preservation, then we look at Nazi, right? We look at what happened, then it, it can become really, you know, really, really bad, you know? So then we look today. We look at our society today. You know, we see certain instances of this happening with the riots and stuff. And mind you, this is political violence. You know, as the now, just like the examples that we had before, right? Um, say Mussolini, right? When the when the black shirts started, when the fascist movement started, they didn't have no power. They weren't officially any political group. They were just a group of people, you know. 
Este, now when you look at it, let's say in today's terms, um, okay, yeah, something like the NRA, right? The NRA isn't a government. It, it is. It isn't part of the government. It isn't a political party. It is a group of citizens that pay, that made this 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 organization where they defend the right to bear arms, right? So so it's something like that. The brown shirts, you know. I don't know how official or whatever, pero it was official enough to where where they were doing what they were doing. And apparently, I don't know if they were being arrested or not. It didn't sound like it didn't sound like it sounded like they had support. Right, so their thing was beating up commies. <laughs> <clears throat> they were beating up commies. Este, uh, the Nazis, uh, the, they were beating up Jews and gypsies and, you know, uh, undesirables. <clears throat> este, uh, who was Mussolini beating up? Uh, the, I think uh, I, didn't, I didn't pay attention to that part. But they, uh, once they took power, they started... Este, um, no, wait. Hey, that's right. They're being the commies. <laughs> My bad. <laughs> Did I just, uh, yeah, the Jews, the commies. Wait. Okay, anyway, I'm confused. Uh, it's getting late. <laughs> you know how it is. We're working late. Uh, mine starts skipping. But you see the violence, right? And some of it doesn't have to be officially attached to a political party, although there is ideologies and they will find support among political parties. You know, the Bolsheviks, right? Este, after the revolution, they were all they were fighting within the parties to figure out, you know, who's going to run stuff. And the Bolsheviks were fighting with the Mensheviks or whatever. And it was like a political struggle. But then I think once uh, like Stalin kind of solidified and kind of took everybody out and it kind of just became, OK, Communist Party, Soviet Union and boom, 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 all the way. Right. But violence, they use violence. To squash their enemies, right? Their political enemies. To squash any opposition among the people, right? Uh, to intimidate during elections, you know, over and over. And this is not just in Soviet Russia. This happened all over the place, you know. Examples and after examples after examples in Mexico. They use violence to intimidate, you know, townsfolk to vote for certain mayors or, or whatever, right? Those cartels are, are, are violent. They're, they're vicious. They're vicious or, uh, organizations, right? The terrorist groups in the Middle East, you know, they achieve what they're trying to achieve by blowing stuff up, by killing people or whatever they do, you know. Yeah, when you look in recent modern history, um, we had the Green uh, Revolution in Egypt where there was an uprising where the people took their country, right? As the, but in that, in that uprising for liberty, um, uh, terrorist types, right, Muslim Brotherhood types, injected themselves into the movement. Into, so then when people started having elections and stuff, these guys were really politically savvy. They wore, you know, they wore uh, suits and stuff, ties and shit, you know, because uh, they wanted to be represent. They wanted to make an official political party in this new thing that they were doing in Egypt, right? Because they had just threw off the, the prior leaderships or structures or whatever, right? So then these guys that are very good at speaking or whatever, they get one of them gets becomes president and right away he starts with his shit. You know, and I think it, two years into it, it took a general, um, forgive me for not knowing the names, but if you Google it up, it's, it just happened like several years back in Egypt, right? Este, it took a general to rise up and take him out of power uh, and to reinstitute real elections again or whatever, right? 
step mm-hmm. but these movements get um uh you know they they inject themselves people can um people with ulterior motives inject themselves into these movements these popular movements who are looking for independence who are really looking for for you know liberty right from from the structure that they were fighting uh but unfortunately these um these types these very uh, clever um power hungry political types know how to manipulate um, the masses and whatever but you know power the desire for power you know unchecked power ultimate power can lead in very very as them very bad spots as the one thing that you noticed um, what we noticed when we look at history and we look at the clips that we've been looking at is is the one party system you know the not there was a bunch of parties before the Nazis <clears throat> before the Nazis rose through rose up and took all of the power. There was different parties that represented different people, but when the Nazis took control of the entire structure of government, it was a one party rule. Same thing in the Soviet Union, one party rule. In uh, in Italy, también, you know, Cuba, the same thing. That's the, that's the kind of thing that when you have one party rule. Um, you have a, a, a more propensity of 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 of, um, of, ty- of tyranny, you know. As they because there is no rep- the there's only there's only representation from one party, and it's whatever the party wants, right? It's not about individuals anymore. It's about what the party wants. You know, and there's some very slick and slimy um, types out there who want power, and they will use tactics, you know, to to gain that power by putting us against each other, or by, you know, I mean, look, look, these Antifa people, they go and they beat up uh, Trump supporters, right? What's the difference from what? Mussolini and the black shirt for doing the fascists. They were beating up um, communists, right? Because they thought different. You know, the the fascists were were more like, um, you know, more national. They had just lost the, you know, they got their asses kicked in the war, and they just came back, and they were all like, you know, trying to build some some national pride and stuff. Right, and then they see these commie, these commies uh, ideology who's, that's coming from from Europe and from all over the place or whatever, and spreading. And they're like, you know what, man, fuck this commie shit, right? So they band together and they start beating up commies, right? So here in America right now, the present time is is like, for instance, we look at the uh, are the Antifa, right? Mm-hmm. They're anti-fascist. Sewun Eos um, says them, right? <laughs> they're anti-fascist. They fight fascism, but they're the ones beating up people who don't think like them. Now, I don't see um, you know bands of conservatives running around towns of or, or beating people up who don't think like them. You don't see that. And then again, somebody might say, "Ah, oh, well, what about uh, uh, what was it? That one stupid place that wherever the tiki's? Fuck that. We know that's a bunch of horse shit." Right, so we see these bands, these marauding bands of anti-fascists, right, in quotes, going around beating up people who think politically different than they do. 
right? The fascistas um, in Italy were going around beating up people who politically think different than they do. And they were the fascistas. That was their literal name. That's what they called themselves. Fascistas. Remember, it's a bundle. There's strength in numbers. Bundle. Uh, fascista. Then they became the fascist party, right? Officially. And then we have Antifa. They're the anti-fascists. Right? And they use the tactics of violence to provoke, to intimidate, to, to, just to, just to beat people up who think differently. You know, they show up to a rally, they show up to a prayer rally, they show up to a MAGA rally, They'll show up to a conservative speaker at a, at a Berkeley, whatever, and they destroy and they shut down the, you know, they try to get the venue to, to shut, to get, you know, to shut it down or whatever, right? Earlier, what was it, um, um, the, uh, who was it, the fascist? That, yeah, uh, the, just the threat, remember earlier we were talking about just the threat of violence and, and, uh, and the emperor said, no, no, it's cool, it's cool, you know? I think actually that was, um. Anyway, I can't remember, but we're good. We're good. We're going. So remember, just a threat of violence. And if 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 the if the people of 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 power don't stand up to that threat, and they succumb to that threat, right? Then you know things lead in a in a bad way, because just a threat of political violence, you know, should be dealt with by authorities because. Remember, governance is set up to protect the people. A true king protects the people, is a servant of the people. Leaders, right? Ministers, right? People, the administration of the people. You are responsible for the people. You are, you are to protect the people. That's why we have armies to protect our nation, right? That's why we have police uh, departments in our city to protect our citizens of, of the city, right? Governance is meant to protect the people, not to injure them. And when violence is involved, you know, to to try to gain political, you know, political um, gains or whatever, you know, it, it 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 should really be shunned, you know, by any measure and by any measurement. Now you might say, hey, but the American Revolution, well, that's that's okay. I might okay. That's a valid that's a valid thing, but. We all know that that is not where we're at right now. The greatest, most prosperous nation that history has ever seen. Right now, at this moment in our time in American history, we are not at the point for anything of the sort. The only thing is that's happening right now is these political forces, right? These groups, these political groups, whoever it is, right? You, they they push out narratives on the media about how how everybody's racist or whatever, and it agitates people. Then you have groups out there who are who go out and are hunting racist people, right? Because the, apparently there's so many racist people. Then well, then we need to fight these racist people. So they get together in groups and they go out and they hunt them and they beat them up and stuff like that, right? And they could tell they're racist, but because of the the attire that they wear. That's fascism, you know. Now, I I brought up on another show about the political parties, right? Is 
those people who are doing the violence in the Antifas and in the BLM riots, those are not Republicans. They are not voting Republican. They are not conservative, you know. So when we look at it in the sphere of political violence, that's political violence that comes from the ideological left, from the political left. When you hear Democrats, right, the, the official political party who's instigating, who's, who's instigating violence, who's, t who's talking about, hey, let's make lists, let's make blacklists of people who worked for Trump, let's say, uh, so they can never speak at a university, so they can never work at banks, so they can never do, you know, these blacklists, you know. They're the party of blacklists. The, uh, the Democrat Party is the party of violence, right? Antifa, BLM, right? They are the party of um, sanctions, uh, not sanctions, divestment, uh, um, what is it called? Uh, it's the boycotts, right? And divestment and stuff, right? Of, of, of people or, or ideas that they don't agree with, right? They don't like the Jews, so they got the divestment, sanction, and uh, movement, whatever, right? Uh, whatever it's called, right? That comes from the left. The threat of violence, you know, the the blacklisting, the um, uh, on the on the social medias, right? How they shut people's sh channels down because they think different, right? They demonetize people because they say something that 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 the the party, let's put it in quotes, doesn't agree with. Because when you look at some of these ideologies, right, let's say leftist ideologies in the political realm of, of politics, all of these ideas come from the left, you know. And, and um, the, the authoritarian um, nature of, 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 of ruling comes from the left. The shutting people down, right, the blacklisting, the, the um, right, boycotts and all this stuff, right. That comes from the left, the political left, which translates to the Democrat Party in America. Political violence should, should always be seen as unacceptable by any reasonable citizen, by any reasonable person. The burning of property... You know, the attacking of people because they're wearing a red cap. That's very, it's, it's unlawful, first and foremost, and we're about law and order. But it's very dangerous to where it can lead. Because if history has taught us anything, when you start dehumanizing a specific segment, of the population, whether by their skin color, we saw that during the slave, you know, the slavery times and the Jim Crow things, right? We saw that the human, the dehumanization of a specific people in the in the Nazi Germany. We saw it with the with the with the uh, Jews, they were dehumanized. They were seen as as a, as as insects. They were seen as a virus. They were dehumanized. And they were exterminated. If we start seeing each other as something other than something like a virus, 
where we don't see each other on a human level, where we understand that we have different thoughts, different ideas, different ways of living. If we dehumanize ourselves and the division continues, it only leads to a very dangerous place. It leads to gulags and it leads to gas chambers. That's where it leads. So let's not go that way, okay? Let's learn from our mistakes. Let's look in the past so we can look forward. And political violence is unacceptable in whatever form it shows itself. All right, guys. Thank you. I hope you... I enjoyed that very much myself. You know, I like... Uh, I really... Uh, you know, y'all know this is my gig, man. This is my jam. This is my gig. I'm digging in. I love it. And I just have... I just really enjoy presenting these things to you. You know, I was talking to my mom. <laughs> a little side note. Because my mom was a listener. I say was a listener early on to the show now some of you who who've listened to the early episodes like it was rough you know what I'm saying like we were just and especially the free-for-alls like we were just so she would listen and then she was just like so we're talking today right I told because I hit a little benchmark um and uh and uh and I was telling her about it and she's like oh yeah I stopped listening <laughs> she said I stopped listening after about a, a few episodes you know whatever episode it was because we were just like we were just bullshit nigga but but you know I, you know, I've really found my stride and I really enjoy these lessons, right? These historical lessons and this stuff that this is, this is what the thesis is about, right? I had to find my stride and it took a minute, right? But we're getting there, dude. We, you know, we're getting there and I like it because I really enjoy it. I'm getting better at presenting these things to you. You know, I'm getting better at, at organizing my thoughts and presenting these audios now that we put, you know, we started using that now recently as the... I love it, and, I, and this is my jam, man, and I hope you enjoyed today's lesson, right, of political violence, political violence. Este, all right, so if you are a new listener, I hope you enjoyed what you heard, and if you did, please hit the subscribe button este, and tell your friends, and also check back often because, you know, I, we don't put uh, stuff out every day, maybe every other day, every third day. I'm planning some good interviews, some really nice interviews. Este, those will be coming up shortly. Este, I Again, I just enjoy spending my time with you guys. And I thank you for spending time with us. Um, welcome all you new listeners. Hit subscribe. Da, da, da. Oh, all the links will be in the description. Este, email will be in the description. And it is in the description. Love to hear from you. Uh, if you feel like it's the all right guys, that's it. You know what time it is. I don't gotta say it right ah. Everything that we do here is about it has a purpose. It's a, it's a purpose. It's edif it's uh, e um, um, Edifying right? It's, it's uplift all of that good stuff. Anyhow, I won't ramble on so I want to thank you guys um, Please stay safe out there Things are crazy. So please stay safe uh, stay healthy all right. 
uh, take care of yourself, uh, take care of your family, work hard to, towards your goals, don't give up, okay? So until next time, folks, uh, please take care of yourself, and I will see you soon. Peace out. This is Thesis.